What could coronavirus mean for Afghanistan? If the bills aren't being paid, then the situation will absolutely deteriorate in a terrible way, in a way that's almost certain to have negative effects on our national security interests. Life under lockdown in Cyprus. Given the unprecedented nature of the challenge that we're facing, our people have been steady, they've been calm, they've been resilient. And the astonishing story of Captain Tom Moore. We will get through it in the end. The sun will shine on you again and the clouds will go away. I'm Kate Jabot and this is SITREP. The coronavirus has no respect for borders or for the chaos that already existed in some countries before it arrived. In countless conflict zones around the world, the pandemic makes difficult situations even worse. Afghanistan was meant to be on a path to peace, already a tall order, before the outbreak. Well, this week, dozens of charities and international organisations called for a ceasefire to allow all sides to focus on their new common enemy. Jared Blank is a former advisor on Afghanistan to the U.S. State Department. He's now with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He told Paul Osborne he's sceptical about talk of a truce. Well, it's obviously desirable. I haven't seen any indication so far that it's likely. The Taliban in particular, when they've talked about a ceasefire, have been pretty narrow in the way they've described the possibility, specifically saying that they would offer a ceasefire in areas that are COVID-affected and that they control which sounds like a way to, to consolidate control in their areas as opposed to a way to get a broader ceasefire that might allow also government-controlled areas afflicted by COVID to have some peace in order to deal with the crisis, or even to allow the entire country to get some peace to prepare for the, the disease, even if there haven't been COVID cases in a, in a given area yet. Do you think that actually all sides might see an opportunity here to consolidate their position? I'm certainly concerned about that possibility in a few different ways. One way is that everybody is confronted with a governance and therefore a legitimacy challenge by COVID. So that includes the state authorities, the sub-state authorities, you know, local and, and regional authorities. It also includes the Taliban who claim to be a government. And of course, it also includes the international community. So one thing that that all sides will be trying to do is to present themselves as an effective government and therefore consolidate their legitimacy in the public view. That could be something other than the worst thing if everybody's competing to try to govern better. But it also proposes the possibility of poor coordination and even competition, which would undermine kind of a coherent national strategy to address the crisis. Afghanistan's neighbours, Iran and Pakistan, both themselves struggling with the virus, is, is that going to have an impact? Those, those are two countries that have sought to have an influence inside Afghanistan. Iran is already having a meaningful impact simply because you've got Afghan refugees or economic migrants who are choosing to or being forced to return to Afghanistan from Iran and, you know, by all accounts, bringing the coronavirus with them. So I think the initial spread of the coronavirus in Afghanistan is almost certainly going to be an offshoot of the Iranian epidemic. I think we've got a little bit less of a clear picture about exactly what's going on in Pakistan, but just it's very hard to imagine that Pakistan or Afghanistan are going to escape very serious expression of this pandemic over the course of the next few months. Whether it will have broader political effects or the effects on the conflict, again, I think it's inevitable that it will have effects. It's a little bit difficult to project exactly what those are going to be at this point. You know, So one thing that I've speculated is the Taliban have always relied on the availability of medical support in the, the border areas of Pakistan. 
is that going to be available or is it going to be safe if you've got uh, coronavirus outbreaks that are affecting the medical services system in, in Pakistan? Will Iran or Pakistan be so distracted by their coronavirus crisis that they'll be less able or less interested in the kind of political machinations that they sometimes get up to in Afghanistan. I, I think that's probably wishful thinking. I think both of those countries have dedicated security apparatus that are going to stay focused on trying to press their advantage in Afghanistan as the United States continues its drawdown. Speaking of the United States, to what extent do you think the, the likely coming economic crisis in the US that will follow the pandemic and indeed the problems the US is experiencing in controlling coronavirus itself, to what extent do you think that will diminish any desire to intervene should the situation in Afghanistan worsen? Well, I think you've put your finger on on really the critical thing. So so first of all, you've got this question of the US drawdown of troops has agreed with the Taliban, and I, a, a, an agreement which I think was the best available agreement and the right move for the United States at this time. But part of the way that you could imagine that agreement working is the implicit threat that the United States holds not to complete the drawdown if the Taliban doesn't engage in good faith and make progress on intra-Afghan peace negotiations. I think the, the possibility of the United States reversing course on the drawdown in the midst of the coronavirus as it's trying to protect its troops, I think is, is it's not zero, but it's, it's reduced, and certainly the Taliban are aware of that. I think it's always been my view, the view of most Afghan watchers in the United States, that so long as the United States could continue leading international coalition to pay a substantial amount of financial assistance to Afghanistan, whether that was a unity government that emerged, including the Taliban after a peace deal, or something more like the current situation where our allies were in a continuing civil war with the, with the Taliban, so long as the bills were being paid, the situation could be kept more or less under control. If the bills aren't being paid, then the situation will absolutely deteriorate in a terrible way, in a way that's almost certain to have negative effects on our national security interests. It was always going to be a hard sell to keep a few billion dollars a year flowing to Afghanistan without the troops present. It's a much, much harder sell if you're also trying to come up with potentially trillions of dollars a year to restart the economy after coronavirus. That was Jared Blanc from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace speaking to Paul Osborne. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Uh, Christopher, it, it seems one of the biggest threats to countries like Afghanistan is the loss of attention by Western nations confronting the pandemic at home. Yeah, would you take the United States for as, an, as the main example because it's the main player in what's going on in Afghanistan, but it's also a main player what's going on over the border in Pakistan. And Pakistan ha has an influence on the United States. It certainly has an influence in the Congress. And at the moment, the, uh, uh, the Congress view is very, very, very simple. If you put troops into Afghanistan or you keep troops in Afghanistan, you can tick off, you can justify, in other words, the, the amount of money uh, that's being spent. The other side of this is that it doesn't go away from your, your, your instincts and it doesn't go away from your notice because you've, you've only got to have an explosion. You've only got to have somebody killed in, uh, one of your people killed in Afghanistan and it goes, on, it goes into the Oval Office in that morning's briefing. You think you can take your eye off the ball because of the curse, because of the virus. And the answer is you can't. I mean, for example, this morning, the Americans protested to Iran now, the Americans are running a naval exercise at the moment, and the Iranians, with their small patrol boats, try to interrupt it. And they saw an opportunity uh, to do something like this, 
because the people that control what's going on in, in the security in Iran are quite separate almost from what any political decisions that might be taken. And you can plant that one in Afghanistan as well and other places where the Americans have got an interest. And of the other international hotspots, last week we heard about a temporary Saudi ceasefire in Yemen. What about Syria? Before the virus arrived, we were hearing about huge numbers living in refugee camps there. And that's not going to change. I mean, you're not just going to say, right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll change the, the refugee camp system. But there, are, there is the advantage that the Syrians have got something set up and or the biggest problem is going to be, though, is the NGOs, the non-governmental organisations, the charity organisations, which cannot operate as before. And so in, in those camps where there's a great uh, possibility of, of infection, there is not much that can be done about it because of the restricted uh, restricted capabilities of a lot of those NGOs. And one place where the fighting hasn't subsided is Libya. Libya, it won't subside because that's what people do for a living in in in, in Libya. So it also so it seems since since 2011. I think there's another aspect of what's going on there though, which is important, and that is the other people that are getting involved. I mean, with the Turks getting involved in what's going on in, in Libya, the Russians involved in what's going on in Libya. And so that becomes, a, if you like, a geopolitical theatre which will not be affected by the virus and virus thinking. People are not sitting and say, we better not go there because we might come out with a dry throat or something. Christmas stay with us. Well, this week, the Royal Hospital Chelsea confirmed that four of its residents have died after contracting coronavirus. In Cyprus, meanwhile, the British military community is on lockdown, like the rest of the population. There's a curfew and the threat of fines for breaking the new rules. There have been nine mild cases of COVID-19 within the British bases so far. But the commander of British forces in Cyprus, Major General Rob Thompson, told our reporter Simon Newton the outbreak's been relatively minor. The great majority of those who have had the virus are now uh, have been tested negatively, which means they are clear of the virus and they're now living their life. All of those people who did get coronavirus here only had mild symptoms and therefore were cared for at home or in the block by our medical services and by the community who did great service to those individuals. We're living in lockdown, but there are things that make this place much easier to live in lockdown than it is in the UK. And I have been incredibly impressed by the way our communities have risen to the challenge both individually and collectively to stick by what we have ordered them to do. And what about people going from outside of the bases into the Republic itself? How, how does that work? You can go there for certain purposes, so going to the supermarket or to the doctor or to the vet, and you have a simple process where you apply on a text machine to get an authority from the Republic of Cyprus to allow you to do that. And when you go out, you carry that text message with you, which allows you to show to any policeman who stops you the purpose and the validity of your journey. And that process has not been without teething troubles, but it's working and our people are using it. For those that don't obey them, there are fines for people going you know, outside when they shouldn't do, etc. Yes. So I think the first thing is to say I've been really struck. We're a military community. People will have a tendency to obey the rules. And that's been absolutely clear. People have been really good about that. But if somebody is out without the appropriate authorization, they will receive a fixed penalty notice. And that's the same penalty as you would get in the Republic of Cyprus. And it's 300 euros. And that's been a deterrent. Um, yesterday, for example, all those fixed penalty notices that were given out were only given to non-Brits inside the bases. So I'm confident that the metrics support my assertion that people are being really good about this, and that's excellent to see. People being quarantined when they arrive who are coming in and out on, on postings? 
if anybody comes into Cyprus, for example, who's coming back from the UK and is joining 903 Expeditionary Air Wing, they will spend 14 days in isolation before they go um, and take up their job. And that's important. That's in step with the Republic of Cyprus. That is the best medically proven advice to making sure that this disease does not come into our community because 14 days allows you to see those symptoms. And at the end of 14 days, if they've got no symptoms, then people resume normal life. Although that's not much different once you come out of uh, isolation from travel into normal isolation. Given the unprecedented nature of the challenge that we're facing, our people have been steady, they've been calm, they've been resilient. Isolation is not easy. It makes relationships at home a bit more challenging. If you're a single service person living in a block, it's not a great place to isolate. But people have been inventive at staying connected. They've got themselves into routines. There's been rigor. There's been absolute resilience. And a lad said to me on the gate this morning as I came into work, it's dull, sir, but it is what it is. We need to get through this. And I thought that was a really good, simple way of taking this on the chin and being resolute in confronting it. That was Major General Rob Thompson talking to Simon Newton. This is Zitrap. NATO has so far flown more than 100 missions to deliver critical supplies and move the seriously ill to hospital. But at an online gathering of defence ministers this week, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warned hostile states could see the chaos around the coronavirus as an opportunity. He also promised to step up efforts to counter misinformation, like the false claim the outbreak is linked to 5G technology. We are countering these false narratives uh, with facts and with concrete actions. We're also working even uh, closer with allies and the European Union to identify, monitor and expose disinformation and to respond robustly. Well, Britain is deploying two specialists to NATO's new coronavirus communication hub. Long before the pandemic, Donald Trump was sceptical about international alliances like NATO. Well, now America's had well over half a million COVID-19 cases and more than 26,000 deaths. This week, a sailor on board a US Navy aircraft carrier died, one of more than 500 infections on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt. The ship's captain was fired after his letter pleading for help with the outbreak was leaked. Well, earlier I spoke to Simon Marks from Future Story News in Washington, D.C. He's been monitoring America's response to the outbreak and he told me the president's handling of the carrier was far from his only failing as the pandemic took hold. The firing uh, of its commanding officer, Brett Crozier, raised really fundamental questions uh, about President Donald Trump's relationship with the military because uh, this action taken by his then acting Navy secretary, who of course has since uh, tendered his resignation, was seen by so many uh, Americans and particularly by so many military families as something that was completely out of keeping with the tradition of honouring the military here at all times. Too little has been done too late to try and contain the virus within the United States, just as the commanding officer claimed 
bombed was taking place aboard the Theodore Roosevelt. And if you look at the numbers now, I mean, more than 3,000 members of the U.S. military have tested positive uh, for COVID-19. The Pentagon keeps having to assert that the U.S. military remains fully combat ready. Uh, but the USS Theodore Roosevelt uh, is far from combat ready, given that it's now in Guam, its crew having been evacuated, uh, and all of them tested for coronavirus with scores of crew members now receiving treatment for COVID-19. And Simon, if the pandemic triggers a large-scale recession, presumably Donald Trump will be even less likely to invest in things like collective defence. We have seen that President Trump either has an inbuilt antipathy to the idea of broad-based multilateral organisations and agreements, the sense of collective defence, or he is more than willing to use those concepts uh, as part of the blame game in which he's engaged. We've seen that in the past with relation to NATO. We're absolutely seeing it now with regard to the threat to defund uh, the World Health Organization and really to blame the World Health Organization for problems that President Trump's critics argue lie at his door. So I think this does raise fundamental questions again about whether Donald Trump, in classic terms, is an isolationist uh, president, someone who's called into question the level of troop commitments, for example, to South Korea on the Korean Peninsula, someone who constantly, every time he mentions NATO, talks about the fact that he wants to see other NATO members kicking more money in so America can kick less in. Uh, this is all part of a worldview that again has been exposed through the coronavirus experience. What about China, though, Simon? Uh, given Donald Trump's rhetoric on China, might the idea of Beijing becoming a dominant global voice give him reason to think again? I mean, this is an opportunity for, for countries like China and Russia. Donald Trump views China through only one prism, really, and that's the trade relationship. He hardly ever has anything to say about what's going on in the South China Sea. He hardly ever has anything to say about military expansionism in Beijing. He's entirely focused on trade uh, and his desire to sell as much US agricultural product to the Chinese as possible. I do think that it is highly likely between now and November that we hear increasingly angry rhetoric from the president about China. He started referring once again to coronavirus this week at the White House as the Wuhan virus in an environment in which Donald Trump is going to want to eschew all blame for what has happened here in terms of the loss of life. He's going to be looking for targets to blame. I think uh, he may find the opportunity to blame China absolutely irresistible. How damaging overall do you think his handling of the coronavirus could be to his re-election prospects? Well, look, his, his approval ratings were holding up until the last uh, batch of polling was published. He's definitely slipped a little uh, in the course of the last week. I mean, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, Kate, a lot is tied to the unfortunate death toll here. And we don't know what the impact on the American psyche is going to be of a death toll that by the time this is over may be somewhere between 60,000 and 100,000 people, possibly north or south of either of those numbers. Those are staggering losses for communities all over the country. And what that does to the American psyche 
safety coupled with the difficulties this country is going to have returning to anything approximating normalcy, as all countries are going to find, I think that that's a really, really open question politically. You also have to look at the other side. Will the American public become enthused about the prospect of President Joe Biden? I mean, on the face of it, this ought to be what they call a change election. People should be very fed up, you would think, and would be voting under all circumstances for change. But does Joe Biden really represent the change they want? That was Simon Marks speaking to me earlier from Washington. Our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, was listening to that. Uh, Christopher, Donald Trump was already no friend of organisations like NATO. Given the likely economic impact of the virus, is he even more likely to put up the shutters to the rest of the world? Depends on how the numbers go. Like the numbers, the numbers on the economy, which is the w- biggest thing in America at the moment, and also his own numbers. His own numbers are standing at 40% uh, popularity at the moment. People will go to vote if they go to vote, if it's cleared up so they can go out to vote. Uh, they go to vote in November. And uh, Donald Trump in November will have quite possibly a different sort of atmosphere. It may be he can stand up as a hero and say, listen, I cleared it up. Uh, The other thing to consider very, 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 very much, and that is his attitude towards organizations like the World Health Organization, which he has now withdrawn American funding. America is going to vote. And I go back to Reagan when I lived lived, lived in Washington. America's going back that way. It's looking for a white 70-year-old to run their organization again. America, therefore, looks for reassurance, and that's something else to consider by the time you get to November. How do you see the, the, the US-China relationship uh, developing? Well, I'll tell you, there's two things about that. Uh, one, I ha- just happen to know that, in, for example, a recent sort of study in MI6 suggests that China has a far more aggressive notion towards the West, as we still call it, uh, than sometimes we might imagine. Uh, and it can be not exacerbated, but it can be encouraged by the attitude of America. You know, Americans find it easy to go back and blame China for almost everything. Uh, and this is what is going to happen here. But the biggest problem is that if you're going to solve this problem, and what the problem is, is not, sadly, it's not just the health of the world. It is the, it is the finances of the world. China owns the world. China owns the world in as much that it owns something like sort of 30, 30% of world debt. People get into trouble. Countries get into trouble. It's like a, a payloan debt in some of these countries, which have no chance, no chance whatsoever ever repaying that debt. China is not going to go along with the view at the moment, which the Italians and some others, uh, the G7 and the G20 countries, you write off those debts. You say to 20% of the world, which has no chance of ever paying anything back, don't pay it back. Forget it. We'll wipe it all clean. And that is the future. It's the only future. So it's a global solution rather than an individual solution for people like Trump are people like uh, President Xi. What kind of effect do you think um, that the economic crisis is going to have on the amount of money available for defence in the years ahead? In the United Kingdom, whatever is going on at the moment, has still got to still got to say to its defence department, just as it says to every other department apart from health, look at your budgets because somebody has got to. We've got to straighten the accounts out at the end of this, and it may take it may take a, a decade to do so. Look at the projects. Uh, that you've got, that you can actually shelve some of the stuff or get rid of some of the costings. Or start thinking that you, we no longer have a need for 
or are willing to willing to fund defences it is at the moment are going to be totally different. Um, I don't mean you just end up with guys standing outside of Buckingham Palace on guard, on guard, but you do start thinking what you do in a new world with your forces. And I'll tell you, there'll be one committee which will relook, have another look at the idea of major uh, long-term fundings, such as does the United Kingdom remain a nuclear power? Does Trident disappear? Is the United Kingdom in the business of force projection? In other words, do you need two aircraft carriers and all the clobber that goes with them? Uh, these are major issues, and I think that they're going to have to be looked at uh, again. And they will probably, if there's a solution to actually cut down the money on them, that's where the sort of big funding is going to come from. Yeah, and we had confirmation this week the defence review is being delayed till next year. Will we have a clear view of the post-virus world by then, though? We won't have a, a, an idea of which way the world goes. We don't know that. What we do know, this virus isn't going away. What is going to happen is society are going to have to learn to live with it. And depending on how long it takes to be the law to be vaccinated against it, if that ever happens, uh, that is the way the world will change quite differently. But nobody knows how that's going to be or when it's going to be. There are precious few things to feel optimistic about, which might explain why the story of Captain Tom Moore has struck a chord with so many in the UK and around the world. The Second World War veteran wanted to raise money for the NHS during the pandemic. He certainly did that, raising well over £12 million in just a few days. Paul Osborne has the story. It was a modest aim. Captain Tom Moore wanted to raise £1,000 for NHS workers on the front line of the coronavirus response. To do it, the 99-year-old wanted to complete a 100 laps of his garden in Bedfordshire before his 100th birthday at the end of the month. So, with the help of his walking frame, he set off. Every day I'm doing about 10, what I call a lap of, of the house. I do 10 each day so that eventually I'll get the 100. Then I'll, after that, I shall continue and do some more so long as our good super nurses are getting some more money. Soon he raised a thousand pounds, but something about his story caught the public imagination, and the money kept coming in. A hundred thousand, then a million, and then millions more. It seems almost like fairyland to think that we started off as a thousand to a sum of money that's not believable, is it? Right on schedule, on Thursday morning, he completed his 100th lap. There he is. Congratulations. Well done. Absolutely amazing, amazing achievement. A guard of honour there to greet him from 1st Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, Major Ian Atkins. It's an honour and a privilege for, all, for us to be here in whatever limited capacity we can to, to support Tom in, in what is an outstanding achievement. To go from trying to raise a £1,000 uh, by doing some lights in the garden, you know, absolutely fantastic stuff, but you know, over 12 million, I think, I mean, it, it's staggering. And you know, for us, we see Tom very much as a member of the regimental family. Um, so to be here to support him in any way is, is just great. It's such a privilege. Among those watching, Claire Baxter, part of the NHS team looking after him. We're very proud of him. We adore him. And we are 
just honoured to be able to look after him because he's always got a smile on his face, always asks how you are. He's a true, true gentleman. Captain Tom Moore served in India and Burma during the Second World War and afterwards became an instructor at the Armoured Fighting Vehicles School. The millions that he's raised will go to NHS Charities Together, which represents and supports a range of health service charities. Its chairman is Ian Lush. I feel a particular personal connection because Captain Tom was in Burma and India at the end of the war. And so was my late father, who was Major Cecil Lush of the Engineers. And they may well have met. So it's extraordinary to see the amount of money and the outpouring of goodwill towards the NHS and towards all the NHS charities who will take good care of the money that he's raising. The money will be spent on well-being packs and restrooms for NHS staff and electronic devices so patients in hospital can keep in touch with relatives who can't be at their bedside. The scale of the response has overwhelmed Captain Tom's family, his daughter Hannah. I don't think that any of us really realised that it turned into something so different. It's only nine, ten days ago, I think, that this all started and... I still think we are absolutely floored by what has been achieved, but we're so happy, so humbled and, and so proud. They're all so brave. We're, we're a little bit like having a war at the moment. The, the doctors and the nurses, they're all on the front line. And all of us behind, we've got to supply them and keep them going with everything that they need so that they can do their job. It was meant to raise just a £1,000, but Captain Tom Moore has become a focal point for a nation struggling with a crisis that it never expected to confront. I think you've all got to remember that we shall, we will get through it in the end. Uh, it, will all, it will all be right, and but it might take time. But at the end of the day, we shall be all OK again. And all those people who are finding it difficult at the moment, the sun will shine on you again and the clouds will go away. That was Captain Tom Moore ending Paul Osborne's report. Thanks to Christopher and to all of our contributors. Don't forget, you can get the latest updates at forces.net slash news. You can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're on the line, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode? I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.